Welcome to our next episode of the 5 Moments of Need Performance Matters series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the 5 Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise. Well, in the Performance Matters series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology and offer proven ways to put the five moments of need into practice. Welcome back to another Performance Matters series. Bob Mojo here, one of your co-hosts. It's so wonderful to have you on again. This is our 56th episode. <laughs> kind of hard to believe. Tens of thousands of downloads. We're honored by that. Hope the information is helpful. And that's a sign of that. By all means, please let us know what you think. Comments, feedback, uh, future topics, presenters would be wonderful. We want this to help you make that wonderful journey from a training first to a performance first mindset. And with that, my gosh, we have today one of my heroes in the space, who I'm incredibly honored to introduce as Dr. Katie Coates from uh, McKinsey and Company. Katie, it is so wonderful to have you here. Welcome. Thank you so much, Bob. It's great to be with you today. And a recent doctor, correct? Well, I'm, I'm finishing things up. Yes. It will <laughs> well, be official shortly. Yes. It's official to us. We've seen all the backstory and, and listened to your wonderful defense of your work and what you have also shared with us, which is pretty remarkable. Maybe even this is a little off script. I was very taken back when you did a little uh, research to start about the breadth of this research out there, what you discovered with the degree to which this discipline has been explored. Could you share a little bit about that? Yeah, um, absolutely. Just to take a, a little step back, how I got into this and why I decided to study it for my PhD, as you know, we're working on a really cool project at McKinsey with our visual graphics team. And we have a, a set of folks called business presentation specialists. And what they do is they take pages from or PowerPoint pages, Word, things from our consultants, and they do the formatting and graphics and things like that. It might sound simple, but it's a pretty complicated role. And it was mm -hmm. really hard to get these people up to speed. It took a lot of time, like 18 to 24 months. So we re-engineered their onboarding experience. We made it more simulated. Um, instead of it being topic-based, like this week, we're going to learn graphic design. This week, we're going to learn PowerPoint this week. We're going to learn this. From day one, they started working on jobs, very simple jobs. And we built a performance support solution or a digital coach that acted as scaffolding for them and helped them. And they learned how to use that in the onboarding. And then when they actually started on the floor doing actual work, they had that um, support structure with them. And it just, you know, the results of this the impact blew our socks off. So we were so excited. You know, we cut the time to competency down to six months. They increased capacity within the department by like 30% given this. A lot less infrastructure was required to support new hires as, as they started working on the floor. They were able to do more complex jobs. I could go on and on. It was just really successful. And at the same time as I was doing that, I had to finalize my dissertation topic in my PhD program. And I just was so inspired. And I, I started to see you know, there was a training 2018 survey done and only 21% of the participants surveyed claimed to be doing performance support in their organization. Mm -hmm. And I could also see from you know our conferences and talking to people, lots of confusion around this. I really wanted to explore this and get into this. And the first thing you do is really you do a literature review, right? You go out and you look at the research. And if you compare 
e-learning or digital learning or transfer of training or instructional design, there are thousands of research articles. If you look at performance support, it's a very small body of research. Very, wow. very small, a limited set of materials that are out there. So I was really happy I was doing it because I'm you know, contributing to a very small body of research on performance support. Yet a very powerful discipline. Yeah. As you described, the irony, I tell you, I was at a conference, Katie, presenting recently. Um, I was one of two breakouts. Mine was on adopting a performance mindset. The other one was on e-learning stuff. These are not the numbers, but I'll just use relative numbers. Uh, 10 came to my session, 70 went to the other. Now, again, it's not where I want to be awful careful here is that it has nothing to do with me. It's just really an e-learning session versus one that talks about shifting your, you know, and, and of the 10 who came, one of the questions I asked was, I said, look, I'm excited that you're here. Glad you picked the topic. Can I just ask in your organization, zero being none, 10 being that you got off the charts, you know, workflow learning strategy that's maybe documented or supported by tools, you know, give me a number, nobody over a two, meaning only like one or two twos. Most were like, I'm just here to, I don't, I don't even know what we're, I don't even know what this is about. It just staggers me with what you just described. I mean, that's the irony to me, Katie, with what you just described of what it, what you saw it do, and we see it do repeatedly, that we still are the stepchild. So we got way ahead of ourselves. That was my fault. Sorry, friend. Um, but I've known you for years, remarkable leader. Those on the call may not who are listening. Give us your journey that got you here, um, and then we'll segue into the research. Sure. So I'm an old timer too. I've been at this for over 30 years now. Um, I started actually I started in the 90s as an instructional designer in the SAP space. Okay? Oh my goodness. End user training and configuration training in the SAP space. But then I've held many different roles over the years. So I helped build an e-learning design and development center of excellence. You know, I've worked across all content areas from technical to leadership development and all the other skills in between developing skills. I've built a couple different design centers of excellence, one in India, and I also ran the back operations for talent development in India. So that was a great like four-year experience in, wow. in, in learning operations in India, built my skill set. Came back, was a deputy chief learning officer for audit practice at, at Deloitte. And then um, five years, no, six years ago now, uh, made the move to McKinsey, where I've held a couple different leadership roles here as well. Where now I, um, I look after about 18,000 professionals, um, the curriculum and strategy. And these are, these are colleagues that are in our functions, our firm functions. So things like, you know, HR and IT and, and finance. And then also a set of folks that kind of provide services and assets and things to clients and client service wow. teams, support the consultants, if you will. So a broad set of folks. And really got into the performance support mood, just a few mood, listen to me, because I'm so excited about it. I got into the <laughs> support space a few years ago and, and have been on the bandwagon since. Yeah, remarkable. And uh, they are fortunate to have you there. So it's been so enjoyable to know you personally and as a colleague, uh, watch your journey here. So, you know, let's, let's get a little bit into research. I, you know, it's funny, our industry needs research. I was talking to a colleague the other day. I love this quote because I said uh, someone made reference to doing research. A colleague of mine at the table who is a researcher goes, no, 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 no. Take the RE off. You're searching. You're not doing research. <laughs> you know. And so that's one thing I love about this podcast. We haven't had many of them, honestly, mm -hmm. that have gotten to this depth. Talk to us about the ins and outs of research. Frame the approach that makes this so defendable and the results and such you're, you're going to share as well so important and validated, frankly. 
Yeah. So there was some rigor around this and it follows kind of qualitative research methodologies. And I had, you know, a a committee of professors that actually were with me step by step looking at what I was doing and giving me feedback. And it had to be, you know, approved by a research board to make sure that everything I was doing was ethical. So it, it was really in the university confines and it was monitored and watched by experts in qualitative research. The first thing you do in a dissertation, you should come up with, you know, what's the problem or what do you want to study? What's the question? And, you know, my question was, again, around adoption, really focusing on those upfront decisions that leaders make. So what are the events and experiences that lead senior learning and development professionals to adopt and implement performance support? So I wasn't looking at the end user adoption, but the upfront decisions that were being made. So you frame that question, you do the lit review that I talked about, And when I had my argument, my argument was that performance support is effective and can have an impact. I just don't understand why more organizations aren't doing it, right? So that's that's it. And I went out and I looked at the research that applies to that. So I checked out four different fields or areas, current state of work in L&D. And I looked at folks like Burson's work, Tony Schwab, he wrote a book on kind of the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, Nick Van Dam has published quite a bit on kind of the current state of work in L&D. So I looked at those things. Obviously, I got into learning theory. So Ruth Clark's work on cognitive load, our buddy Ebbinghaus in the forgetting (laughs) curve. And there's some folks in the Netherlands that have reproduced his study and found similar results. Grossman and Salas do a lot on transfer and Sweller. He does a lot of things on with Clark actually on cognitive load. And then I looked at performance support. And again, I think I found around 12 dissertations. I did a a pretty broad review. There may be a few others out there that are related, but around 12 dissertations, which is very small. Amazing. You know, there's a lot of opinion pieces, like in performance improvement and performance improvement quality. So there's a lot of opinion pieces, but not a lot of research. I think our friend Frank Wynn has done kind of the most where he's really compared putting someone through a formal experience, either an e-learning or a classroom learning, giving them just access to performance support, and then giving them access to both, and then looking at the results of those. So lots of stuff there. And and you and Khan obviously have published quite a bit, and Gloria Geary are the godmother, right? So a lot of (laughs) work. Other than the book, she actually published some really good opinion opinions and pulled in a lot of research. And then, of course, I I dug into adoption and diffusion. So Everett Rogers' work, Surrey has done a lot of work in the space of educational technology and adoption of educational technologies. And then Wisdom created a framework of adoption that I borrowed from. That's the first piece. And then really what I did is because I wanted to look at leaders' experiences, I wanted rich description of what they did like their lessons learned, their experiences or best practices. So I chose open qualitative inquiry as the method and I conducted interviews and I used purposeful sampling. So finding, you know, leaders who had at least four to five years of business experience and had implemented at least one performance support solution. So that was kind of the selection criteria identified, you know, really amazing folks across 13 different industries. So a really broad set of participants and they were all passionate and excited to participate in this. I have fellow students in the program that can't get people to participate in their study. (laughs) Mine were like tripping or, you know, they were so excited to be part of this. I was so thankful and grateful to them. Spent about 75 minutes with them on Zoom, recorded it, had it transcribed by an external provider called rev.com and ended up with around 500 pages of data. 
Wow. And then what I did is I upload that data into an analytic tool called Deduce and you do thematic analysis. And that's where you code. First thing I did is mapped every transcription against the video. So I had to go back and look at that to make sure they were accurate. I did that before I uploaded them all. Then you go line by line, every line and you code it and you start to pull out themes from the data and you play with those themes. You go back and forth and, and you organize them and you look at them in many different ways. And that took weeks of work to do. And then you look at the prevalence, like how many times a theme is brought up by your participants. So all of the themes that I put in my research had at least 12 participants spoke about wow. that particular wow. theme. Most of them were 15 to 17. Wow. So, and again, I said, you know, 17 industries were representative across like financial services, healthcare, life sciences, furniture, e-commerce, restaurants. So I had a broad set of industries, CLOs, senior vice presidents, directors of learning, reskilling, upskilling leaders, global wow. capabilities managers, those types of titles. So that's kind of the process. Wow. The breadth is amazing and so needed. And what I love about this, Katie, for us, and we'll, I want to wrap when we get done about how people get access, how yep. they can find their way around to things is because that's where our listeners are. We overwhelmingly, when we go out and do a little feedback and anecdotal stuff, we get, you know, I find these podcasts helpful because I am in that decision-making stage. Why should I do this? Why should I invest? How do I pitch that to my organization to invest? What's the there there that's going to help? And that's what this pivots around so brilliantly, again, with those folks that are a bit more downstream. In their journey. Yeah. So, so let's get to it. What were some of your key findings and takeaways from those 15 plus or so that shared their story with you? Yeah. So one of the things I think that there's still a lot of myths about performance support out there in the world, right? One of the things I continually hear is, well, it's good for help desks. Mm -hmm. It's good for very procedural activities. So I wanted to test that and I didn't say that to my participants, but I said, you know, tell me where you use performance support in your organization. How do you use it? And that was the open-ended question, right? And so I had like 36 different examples from the 17 wow. interviews. And then I synthesized that down to a number of nine. I'm not going to go through everything, but of course, you know, it's access to consistent work processes that increase efficiency and quality. We know that's a big part of it. The support professionals' time to competency. So during onboarding, giving them the right tools to help them. There's examples of how this is used kind of in soft skills as well. I mean, and I hate to use soft skills, but, you know, it's not the harder thing, those power skills, if you will. Yeah, yeah, I love it. A big but, myth. Um, yeah. And, you know, there was one example in an organization where they had kind of this people leadership hub. It was like, okay, how do I hire people? How do I develop people? How do I review their performance? How do I handle kind of different scenarios? Now there's some, there's some procedural things in there, but there were a lot of things around interviewing or coaching, giving feedback and performance support pieces to really support that whole process. Wonderful. So a lots of different types. In the moment, product and pricing technical support came up, reskilling people. When things were really, that critical impact of failure was really high, like safety regulations and compliance, hybrid working models when people were working from home or performance support to help because they don't have the water cooler or the person next yeah. to them to ask. So these were the types of examples. So, so many things out there. So that was one big lesson learned. You know, what I love about that is it so resonates with where we are today, the pandemic situation, the things that you described. Now, these challenges have been around forever. I just think the circumstance has exacerbated it, yep. right? And exposed the cracks in the dam. It might've been, you know, kind of around anyway, 
but compliance, these kinds of things, the, the, the hybrid worker, the disruptive workforce, the keeping up with the rate of change, you know, which again, those have always been in every organization you walk into, but the nature of the, the stress at the time or the anxiousness of those things was just something that we kind of swept under the rug, frankly, in some ways. But you found that these people ran right at it with this kind of an approach. Oh, well, there were a couple of really awesome examples around how performance support kind of showed up during COVID, during the pandemic. One particular one that's really interesting was a hospital and the learning team really, they had gone to a conference and they'd learned about performance support at a conference and they really wanted to do it. But the way they described it, to get it in the door would have been a very difficult process for them, like bureaucratic, like going through a lot of approvals. Sure. But then when COVID hit, they shut down their in-person academy. They weren't going to do any more in-person programs. And they had to train nurses from one ward. So maybe they were working in the ICU or another ward, but they now had to work in the COVID ward. And they had the baseline skills, but there were some differences. So they had some things that they had to teach them. And the learning manager picked up the phone and called her boss and said, I think we need to do performance support now. And they went and took a quick proposal to the leaders and leaders said, yes, that makes total sense. You bring it in. And then they worked with the right team of experts, external experts. And in 10 days, they produced a performance support solution to help with that transfer from folks from one ward to another. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And now now it's at the door. They all love it. They have doctors coming them saying, when do I get my performance support? When do I get mine? So happens every time. That was a, unfortunately a critical performance pivot. And the, the conversation around when can you make the course went completely out the window. Yep. Oh yeah, that wasn't even an option. Amazing. And the other example, which I think is really worth sharing because it's powerful. And if you're thinking about business continuity, it's really, this was amazing. It's a financial services organization that had many different branches of business. It was a travel segment. And during COVID, obviously there was no traveling, right? And they had all right. of these agents and what do you do with them? Well, they they actually transferred them into other groups. So they had coverage into the credit card and other business mm. units. And it was easier because they already had performance support in place. These folks already had the baseline customer service skills. It was the product sure. knowledge. And they had access to that in the performance support. So they didn't have to lay off people or, you know, or stop anything. It was just the continuity, the business continuity was there. So just two really powerful examples that came out of interviewing and an unforeseen circumstance that came up that had an impact. Amazing. Brilliant work. Did you want to hear a couple other of the key findings? Yeah, no, please. Where was the things that bubbled up? So basically when I did my analysis, there were kind of four key buckets. And we already talked about one, which was the external influences. The other three buckets were organizational influences. So things that was the kind of intersection between the organization and and the learner. So that's like shared culture and values, leadership champions, having a right network for implementation, the right resources, and the communication and training plan for it. So those were organizational influences. Then things about the innovation itself, performance support itself, the cost benefit, being able to demonstrate the cost benefit the perceived complexity of the solution and ability to experiment and show success. And then individuals played a huge role. So the attitudes and motivation of the learning team particular, that could be the instructional designers and the faculty or your instructors, Um, awareness and skill levels, how much people actually knew about performance support and the benefits leaders ability to influence that was one thing I was surprised at how prominent that was and kind of Mm. the nuances around that. 
And then the leader's assessment of results and how they communicated that back to leadership champions, really a lot of good detail in there. Those were kind of the big themes. And just to highlight a couple, again, the shared values and culture, Bob, we we still, like you mentioned earlier, we still have a hard time starting to bring in that performance first mindset. And every participant talked about that. And in one organization, you know, he said, the participant said, our organization is just not fully wired to embrace performance support. You know, a lot of people default to formal learning and they love it. So it's really hard to move the leadership. It's not just the L&D team, but the leadership of the organization and the L&D team in that direction. And part of this, they also talked about the attitudes of the trainers. The trainers, <laughs> you know, they feel threatened. They feel like they're going to lose their job. And some of the strategies that folks use was to bring the trainers in early on in the project and have them become part of the project so they could see the benefits of this and how it was going to supplement and help them do their job and that they were, you know, it didn't necessarily mean they were going to lose their job. It was going to make things better. So those were some of the key things around kind of the mindsets. And then this making the case for performance support, like how do you really talk to leadership and lots of amazing stories here in terms of the the language that we use as learning colleagues. I've heard this many, many times, but it really stood out here. And I had one of my participants, he was actually making me laugh. He's like, I had a senior leader that said to me flat out, you can be very pedantic. And he said it floored him, right? He really had to step back and think about, okay, how do I talk about this stuff in business terms, in terms that the stakeholder that I'm talking to, but they will get it. And he had to really prepare and think about that. Another senior leader said the same thing. He's talking about this in a meeting and, and somebody said, can you please put together a primer? Because we're confused about what you're saying. So he said, he tried to put together a primer. It was a 20 page PowerPoint. (laughs) Looked at him and said, okay, you're still, you're way off. That's not a primer. And it took him time. So, you know, the language that we use as learning professionals to communicate, this is really important. The one other thing, you know, there's a lot, there's so much we could talk about, but we don't have, you know, a ton of time. But I think this ability, as you get into implementing performance support, it's the crawl, walk, run piece. It's that ability to experiment and show success. It's picking the right project to start with. And that's what I would tell people. Just, you just got to get in there and do it. Pick the right project. You don't want to eat the whole elephant, right? You don't want the biggest problem. You want to find something that you have a good stakeholder that's willing to take a risk and sponsor it with you, something that's kind of low, medium risk, and you will learn from it. You'll do it and you'll learn from it. And that's one of the keys to success is really being strategic about the project you pick, going into it with an experimentation mindset, and then showing success from there. And again, Bob, we could go on and on, but those were some of the big, big highlights. Wow. So my friend, I've known you through your whole journey. As I watched you go through this work, you emerged more passionate than I, I think you were going in. Um, I think for you, it reinforced your own experience. And then you got to talk to these wonderful leaders across all those industries. And you saw again and again, content change, vertical change, but outcome didn't. Enthusiasm didn't. Here's my question, Katie. Why do we lag? In your opinion, you've known so many leaders and you've managed so many L&D professionals. If you look at our industry, why do you think we continue to lag in the 10 go to my room, the 70 go to the other? Where do you think that comes from and how do we break that cycle? Yeah, I, I do think one big thing we've kind of talked about, there's a lot of learning professionals that grew up creating learning experiences and that is fun. They learn the ISD model they're passionate about it, and they're really focused on that. And so I think that's one piece. 
where we need to help understand that this can be fun too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because yeah. this can be fun because of the impact that it can have. The impact, right? The outcome. Yeah. I, I had fun in the other part. I always call it the more immature years of my development. I was jazzed by the smiles and the nods and the attaboys with me and the, my gosh, you changed my life when people walked out of a room, but I didn't necessarily think maybe a month later how they were doing, right? And, and I think every L&D professional, eventually that wave crashes, especially if you advance in leadership. And then you fall into the, what are we getting out of all of this? Like the company, what's the business impact, that darn ROI thing? And it smacks us right in the face. And then the honeymoon ends around those other very defendable outcomes but in the end, you settle into this lull of, holy cow, yep. what am I really doing yep. for the organization? And I think if you look at the research on memory, Will Thalheimer has put some great stuff out there right. on memory, Ebbinghauser, others. You look at it, you can see people forget. And it totally depends on people's attention and the content, the topic. Sure. There's, there's so many things, but we're all human and people do forget. So if you don't provide them with the right supports to actually do the work, the transfer of training is not there. We know that. I also think there's a lot of confusion around how to do this and people mm. view it as too complex and they shy away. Because when you start thinking about breaking down work processes and then you start thinking about people get hung up on technology. I mean, that came up a lot. And in the early days, I understand that because there weren't a lot of technologies. There weren't things to support us. And quite frankly, we talked about this understanding how to develop really high quality, effective performance support, the method, you focus on that first yep. and then you figure out what's the right technology, but people get hung up on that. And I have seen, we have seen interactive PDFs be really awesome and yep. effective performance support. We have seen people build custom things out of SharePoint or other things that are effective as long as they're using the methodology to do it. And then we've seen the systems, right? The systems that were built for this. Yes. And it can work across all different areas. It's helping people understand, yes, it may seem overwhelming and complex, but you just got to jump into it and try it. Once you try it and you get the hang of it and it just becomes kind of second nature. Love that. So as you said, my friend, we can go on forever. Um, your research is spectacular. Couple things. Yeah. What next for folks? And if they want to know more about this, get into the detail and the dots and the T's here, what's next for them? Well, I think going to conferences or looking for the online sessions that are available, these podcasts are really helpful. I think that's the starting point. Do, do your research. You can also search out there for performance support and look at what's available. My dissertation is getting ready to be published. I'm just finalizing all the proofreader edits right now. So that'll be out there and available for people to search on it. So you can take a look at that as well. And then again, it, I think it's just connecting with the network and really like talking to people that, that came up. Everyone who's been doing performance support has put themselves in the network and just started talking to all kinds of people, not just external vendors and, and support yeah. experts, but also like me, people like our, the participants in my research, just really connecting to, to understand it better. Well, you know, we are a silent minority, but I have faith, my friend, because of wonderful work like yours and people like you, that we are coming out. We are, we are having a voice. We are becoming a cohort and a community, which is what we need. And it's followed by vendors. It's followed by technology. My dad always said, you know, money follows things that people perceive as worth spending money on. And so these systems and vendors going into this field, it shows that there's, there's a there there. Oh, that, yeah. there's, that there's things to be done. So we can't thank you enough for your time today, for your dedication, for your friendship. 
for your leadership. Your, I always say this with everyone I bring on, your courageous leadership, because this is not for the faint of heart, but it's, as you've so well demonstrated in your research, it is, it is well worth doing. So let's uh, be more like you and do more of this. Katie, thank you so much for your no, time. Thanks and for, so and much for, for being here. You know how excited I am to talk about it. So it's great to spend time with you. Thanks, friend. Okay, we'll talk soon. Well, that's it for this episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the five moments of need into practice. We welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle at BMOSH, as well as our Five Moments of Need website, which is www.5momentsofneed.com. We hope you're finding these helpful and will subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.